Seth Lazar, welcome. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about the justification for killing in war. What's the central moral dilemma there? The basic problem is that if we're going to have an account of what justifies warfare, we're going to have to be able to explain what justifies killing in war. There's lots of other bad things that go on in war, but the killing is the thing that if you can't justify that, then the whole rest of the enterprise is pretty much doomed. And the thing about killing is that in ordinary cases, we think that killing individuals is one of the worst things that you can do. We think that we enjoy these fundamental moral protections, which people usually talk about in terms of the language of rights, that can only be lost or overridden under very exigent circumstances. And there are two ways, basically, that you can justify killing with somebody who retains a fundamental right not to be killed. Either that right must be lost, or the right must be overridden. So the challenge is to explain how one of these possible models could lead up to a plausible theory of justified warfare. And how in ordinary circumstances outside of warfare might one lose the right to life? There's basically three ways that most people think are plausible. Typically one might think that if you consent you might waive your right to life. Usually people think other conditions need to be met as well. But if you consent that might be one. If you deserve to be killed, perhaps because on a retributive basis, because of something terrible that you've done, then that might be another basis, although obviously lots of people even reject that. And then the third way, and probably the least contentious outside of warfare, is that you can become liable to be killed when you're in some appropriate way or relevant way connected to a threat that can be averted only by killing you. And this is the sense of liability that operates within theories of self-defence. So that sounds quite plausible, that last one. You're in an army, you're attacked, let's say you're attacked in an unjustified way, and you have to defend yourself. You have to kill the soldiers in the other army. Right. If you just thought about it in terms of one nation attacking another nation, then you might just apply the sort of standard self-defence reasoning by analogy. But the problem, of course, is that the nation only acts through individuals. And the question is whether those individuals retain their rights not to be killed or whether they have lost them. And so even if you suppose that there's a war in which one side is clearly unjustified, the individual soldiers whom you have to intentionally kill, whom you will intentionally kill in order to win that war, may or may not be appropriately connected to the sorts of threats that you're going to be averting by killing. Because they had nothing to do with the launch of the war, because they might have been recruited against their will, for all sorts of considerations like that. These are the sort of reasons. So typically in cases of individual self-defence, for you to lose your right to life, to become liable to be killed in self-defence, depends on what you've done, it depends on your behaviour. And one ordinarily thinks that it involves how you have contributed to the threat that needs to be averted in order to kill you. There are different ways in which you can be responsible for contributing to a threat. There's basically two axes. One of them is your degree of causation or causal responsibility. The other one is your agential involvement. So that is the axis along which you get more and less culpable, more and less excused. And so the basic thought is that many soldiers, even on the unjustified side in a war, will not contribute significantly to unjustified threats, on the one hand, and even those who do contribute somewhat will only be very minimally responsible for contributing to those threats. And this poses a problem for an ordinary account of the morality of war, because, and this is a, an idea that I'm kind of speculating about, but I think is very plausible, because in most conflicts in war, there are going to be a morally significant proportion of combatants who are going to be responsible to roughly the same degree as a morally significant proportion of non-combatants. So this means that if you say that only a very small degree of contribution for which you're only minimally agentially responsible is sufficient for you to become liable to be killed, then you're going to find that many non-combatants are also going to be liable to be killed because they too make marginal small contributions to the threats posed by their state for which they're minimally responsible. Conversely, if you want to insist that no non-combatants are liable to be killed in war, 
then you're going to have to set a very high bar of responsibility for liability, which is going to mean that many of the soldiers whom we intentionally kill in war are also not going to be liable. So there's this tension which is going to mean that either on the one hand you're going to be adopting a policy which ultimately leads to rejecting the other kind of central principle of the morality of war, which is that non-combatants ought to be immune from attack, or you're going to be adopting a policy which means that many soldiers are not going to be liable to be killed in war. Which then means that if you think that if this is the end of the story, if the only way that you can justify killing in war is by appealing to the loss of the rights of the people whom you kill, then this is going to mean that you ought not to fight wars because you can't be sure that the people you're going to kill are going to be liable to be killed. So to be clear on that, if you say that every soldier is liable because they meet some minimal responsibility in some way, you're going to have to say that some civilians are liable as well, so you're justified in killing civilians. If you say that only a few soldiers are responsible, then you can't justify war because it looks like you're transgressing the rights of many soldiers in the opposition army. That's right. You can't justify war in that case if the only thing that would justify the intentional killing that you do in war is the liability of the soldiers whom you kill and the people whom you kill. And that has been the central view that has been shared by philosophers of the ethics of war for the last 30 or so years. Despite the many other disagreements that they have, their central agreement is that the way to justify killing in war is to appeal to the liability of the soldiers whom you intentionally kill. So it looks like we've got a problem. To justify war, it looks like we can't say that the combatants have lost their rights. It looks like we have to say their rights are overridden. Absolutely. I think if you want to vindicate something like the ordinary account of the morality of killing in war, we need to appeal to some other considerations besides just liability. So this really means that we need to look to other positive justifications for killing in war that can override the rights of the people whom we intentionally kill. And what might those be? Okay, there's really two lines to take. One is to look at the goods that are served by political communities, in particular the ones that are undermined by forms of territorial and political aggression. So we need to give some account of the value of political sovereignty and territorial integrity, which explains why this is a good that is worth overriding people's rights for. Or we need to give some account of some other duties that we might have that can override the duties that we're going to be killing in war. The ones that I focus on in the paper in Journal of Practical Ethics is a set of duties that we have to protect the people that we care most about. And how does that work? Because soldiers are defending an entire nation. They'll only know a few people in that country. So in what sense can their defence of their families justify an all-out war between one country and another? So the central idea has to start from showing that it can be justified in simple interpersonal cases to use force against other people in order to protect the people you care about. And so in the paper I have an argument to show this, I appeal to the transitivity of certain types of moral reasons. But the basic idea I think is fairly intuitive, that the cost that it's permissible to impose on other people in order to protect people that you care most about are greater than the cost that it would be permissible to impose on other people in order to protect people with whom you don't share these very valuable relationships. But that still leaves the question open of how those sort of duties that we each have to protect the people we share valuable relationships with, how they could be operationalized in the context of war. So what I think happens there is that if you have a large group of people of whom many have duties to protect other members of that group, if that group of people delegates to a subset of the group the role of protecting the whole of the group, then the people who act on behalf of the group as a whole, the subset, can act on the basis of the reasons that apply severally to the different members of the group. Can I ask what your overall objective is in this paper and and in your approach to this subject? Is it to come up with a plausible theory that meets our ordinary intuitions about the right to engage in warfare? 
It is. In a way, the philosophically easy strategy is to start from the interpersonal cases that we're most confident about, especially those self-defense cases, and then to build up to an account of the morality of war from that. And that then leads us to radically revisionist conclusions about what the morality of war should look like. On one hand, it might lead us to a much more permissive approach to the morality of war that removes the constraint against targeting civilians. On the other hand, it can lead to a much more restrained. And I think, in a way, the most consistent version of that view leads to a much more restrained account of the morality of war that is more or less pacifist. So I think those are both philosophically very sensible routes to take, but in a way that's the easy way. And I think that the philosophically interesting challenge for me is to see whether we can vindicate the sort of common sense intuitions that people have about the morality of war, which is, after all, one area in ethics on which there is remark a remarkable degree of agreement, both cross-culturally and cross-temporally. Ideas like the permissibility of going to war in defense of your national community that's a pretty central part of most accounts of the ethics of war from early theists through the various Hindu traditions, Islamic traditions. It's something that's always there. Things like the protection of civilians in war, again, has this broad cross-cultural acceptance. Now, that doesn't mean that it's true. People have agreed on lots of stupid things in the past, and it's possible that this enterprise is completely doomed. And really, that the current consensus on the morality of war is actually philosophically untenable. It's also possible that it's not philosophically untenable, but it's justified in very sort of pragmatic consequentialist grounds, that it's just the best of a small feasible set of alternatives. But I'm interested in seeing whether there are any sort of morally grounded, plausible, intrinsic justifications for some of the sorts of views that people typically have when they think about war for the first time. Seth Lazar, thank you very much. Thank you.